No? There we go. Hey, there we go. Awesome. Hey, speaking of pastors, uh, just two days ago was Pastor Kevin's two-year anniversary of coming to Great Oaks. So can you guys give it up for Pastor Kevin and his work with our students? That's, a, that's amazing. So as a, a parent who has a daughter in high school and a son who volunteers in student ministry, Kevin, uh, Rachel, thank you guys for investing in Great Oaks. If you have been around uh, business or marketing or leadership long, you've probably seen this image that we're going to throw up on the screen. It's called the, the product adoption curve. Um, there's some, it's a way of gauging as you have a new product, as you release something, how quickly and how many people will embrace that new product, how many people will purchase it, adopt it, things like that. So as you, as you break through the categories, you see innovators over here on the left. I mean, no matter what happens, they're on the front of the line, right? They're, they're there buying it. You have early adopters. That's a pretty healthy group. Uh, you have early majority, which is, seems to be most people. And then late majority and then laggards. I've heard worse words for that final category before. But let's think about this. We're going to leave this up here on the screen for a moment. Think about this. When, for example, uh, iPhone owners, when iPhone 13 came out, uh, where were you on this spectrum? Uh, were you innovators? You're Nate Westerfield. Were you at the very front of the line, probably pre-ordered it, had it shipped over to your house directly from the manufacturer? Are you an early adopter, early majority, late majority? I am a laggard when it comes to technology. I am about three or four, maybe six generations behind on technology. I'm going to be that grumpy old guy that has the flip phone that says, this is all I need. Why do I need anything more than this, Right. Uh, what about a Marvel movie release? My son and his girlfriend are our first night, opening night Marvel movie release people. I've become less enamored of crowds in movie theaters, and so I'm usually about four weeks behind. I just saw Shang-Chi yesterday, me and like three people in the theater in the middle of the afternoon. It was the right moment for me. Uh, what about a new restaurant in town? Uh, you hear about a new restaurant that opens, and, and are you excited? Are you, are you an innovator? Are you there on opening night? You're like, oh, I got to go try this food out, or are you waiting to see if people get food poisoning and how the service is? And then you'll decide maybe early majority to go show up there. Now, what about an innovative medical procedure? I don't want to be the first guy on brain surgery. I'm a little bit of a laggard when it comes to things like that. I want to know this surgical procedure has been going on for quite a while. But maybe in a moment of desperation, I'm going to sign up for a trial uh, of a surgery or medicine. Or, or how about our final one? How about uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency? I'm far right, never even on here. I will never adopt that. I'm just letting you know. Some of you are innovators. You're on it. You're like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread good for you. Let's talk in 40 years and see where we're at. I, I'm, I'm usually somewhere between curious and cynical. Uh, just being honest, I'm, I'm usually somewhere between curious and cynical. I'm not an early adopter on most things. I'm not a blind follower. I, I question things. Sometimes this is healthy. Sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes I should probably adopt a little bit sooner. We're in this series called Unrivaled, and we're looking at the miracles of Jesus, and three of our pastors have, have unpacked some of those miracles for us uh, so far. Uh, can we be honest for a minute, though? Uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to believe in the miracles of Jesus. Uh, maybe you grew up in the church, you've heard these since you were a kid, and you've never questioned them, and that's amazing. I love that. Maybe like me, you didn't grow up in the church. And so you, you read things in the Bible and you encounter things and you're like, really? Does that really happen? 
It's kind of like the, the father who comes to Jesus one day and, and, and is begging for Jesus to heal his son. And, and, and he, he says to Jesus, he says, if you can, by the way, don't ever say to Jesus, if you can, right? I don't know if Jesus spoke in sarcasm like my wife does, but I, in this moment, he responds with, with, if I can, like, really? Like, who do you think I am? And, and the father responds and he says, I believe Help me with my unbelief. That's where I'm at a lot of times. I believe, help me with my unbelief. Looking at this diagram once again, where would you, if you were honest, don't answer this out loud, but where would you put your belief in the miracles of Jesus? Are you an innovator? Bible says it happened. Early adopter, I take a little convincing. Early majority, are you on the far end, the laggard? Are you like me with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency you're never going to believe? That was Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if you know about Thomas Jefferson's Bible, but he took a, a knife and took out every miracle of Jesus, including the resurrection, because he could not believe in the supernatural. You see, there, there's many people who don't question the fact that Jesus existed, but they begin to, to question the miracles. This is where Jesus of history becomes the Jesus of Fairyland. Arguments are made that the people back then were just simple-minded and gullible. They didn't understand science or technology or medicine. Some people believe that there are natural explanations for the miracles. Jesus walked across a sandbar or rocks, not truly on top of the water. And when he raised someone from the dead, they, they weren't really dead. They were just narcoleptic. They fell asleep and couldn't be woken up. And others suggested the disciples were so enamored by Jesus that they began to, to exaggerate the stories over time. It wasn't really 5,000 people with two loaves and, and, and a fish. It was more like 50 and they had a full market, but 5,000 sounds better. So let's tell that story. We can blame some of this skepticism in 2021 as we look through history. We look at the Enlightenment age. A lot of people began to question the things of Scripture. Darwin proposed the, the evolution theory, and that challenged the creation account. Philosophers, skeptics, modern science, hundreds of books, hundreds of books have been written that question the reliability of the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, and the claims that Jesus performed miracles. This morning, before I even get into the miracle I want to talk about today, I, I want to just give you, because I'm, I'm on this spectrum of skeptic, I want to give you five reasons why I believe you can believe in miracles. And this is coming from a book that we have at the Youth Center in, in Metamora that I run. It's, and the book is called Everything You Want to Know About Jesus. A great book. Would highly recommend it. Here's, here's five reasons they say in that book that, that we can believe in the miracles of Jesus. Number one, uh, miracles occur in historical context. Uh, they happen with specific dates and geographical references with names of current leaders at the time and, and historic events taking place in the midst of, of historic events. Uh, I had the chance to go to Israel when I was uh, in 2010. It's about 11 years ago. And, and I'll tell you, it, it brought scripture to life. All of these places geographically that I'd read about all of a sudden, I'm standing there where these things occurred. And it was overwhelming moments where we would say, have our, have our leader, he said, you know, it's probable that Jesus stood here. 
you know, that Jesus did a miracle here. Hey, this is the, the, the water well that Jesus talked about. Here is a place that we know if the Bible is true, Jesus stood on this rock. And it, it took uh, my level of faith and trust in the scriptures to a whole new level because of a historical context. Number two reason we can believe extra biblical sources, meaning things other than the Bible, tell us of Jesus as a miracle worker. I, I like having things other than the Bible to back up the claims of Jesus. Here's, here's something that maybe you've never thought about this, but if you go to somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus and they don't believe in the Bible and you start to tell them about Jesus using the Bible, they go, well, I don't believe in your book. So prove to me that Jesus was real without this. Can you do it? Do you have other sources? Do you have logic, reason? Do you have those things to back you up? And so I love when we encounter extra biblical material that talks about Jesus. Josephus was a, a Jewish historian who worked for Rome. And he says this about Jesus, that he was, quote, a man who performed startling feats. Historians are not prone to exaggeration. We like to think. Maybe they are. Victors tell the stories, right? The Jewish Talmud uh, confirms that Jesus was known for performing uh, some sort of supernatural deeds. Uh, it, it's written in this in the Talmud that on the eve of the Passover, they crucified Jesus the Nazarene because he practiced sorcery. Uh, extra biblical material is telling us that there was something unique about what Jesus did, something supernatural, something unexplained. Number three, the reason we can believe Jesus performed many different types of miracles. He wasn't a, a one-trick pony. He didn't repeat the, the same miracle over and over and over as proof of his unrivaled power. It's not, well, Jesus healed somebody's leg again. Oh, Jesus healed somebody's leg. Oh, Jesus healed somebody's leg again. He's really good at healing people's legs. He can't do much else, but he can heal his legs. It's kind of like me with juggling. I learned to juggle three balls. I can't do four, five, six. I can't do them off the floor, off the ceiling. It's not really that exciting. This is all I do, right? Or jokes. All I got is pirate jokes. That's really all I got for you. Maybe one or two pastor jokes beyond that. But if you want a joke, it's going to be a pirate joke. Jesus performed so many different types of miracles. He couldn't be holed into just one type. Number four, there were many eyewitnesses to Jesus' miracles. This is key. There were a lot of people that saw him do these things. They even performed him in front of uh, skeptics and critics. And then the, these stories of Jesus were written down, and they were shared while these eyewitnesses and skeptics were still alive. If these weren't true, they could have easily overpowered and, and said, no, 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 hold up. I was at that feeding of 5,000. It was 50 with a marketplace, right? But there were 5,000 men, not including women and children, who were alive when that was written and said, that moment happened. Last reason, even Jesus' followers were astonished and they struggled to believe. We talk about exaggerating the stories and claims of Jesus. I said that earlier by the, the, the followers of Jesus. And yet what's recorded in scripture is that they were shocked and they had moments of disbelief. And when Jesus rises from the dead, and they show up to say, Jesus rose from the dead, they're like, woman, you're crazy. It didn't really happen. And until they saw Jesus risen from the dead. 
And yet, these same followers, these same men and women, they went on to become the, the biggest advocates for Jesus, telling the stories over and over and over to anyone in, that would listen and everywhere they went. It was personal for them. In Youth for Christ, we have a, a, a spiritual retreat that every staff member is required to go to in the first year or two of employment. It's called One Heart, and it's just a 24-hour retreat. But we end that retreat with a time of communion. And rather than just having the leader of the retreat get up there and read Scripture and say, this is what communion is all about, what they have us do is we sit around, and we're a group of, of 20, 30 people, and we, and we begin to tell stories about Jesus. And, and they say, you have to tell it in a certain way. You have to start your story with, remember that time Jesus and we began to, I thought it was a little weird at first, you know, but, but as story after story began to be told as I'm sitting in that circle, it's, remember that time Jesus like walked on water? Oh, that was amazing. It's like we were his followers seeing all of this and telling the stories. Remember that, that time Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead? Man, he stunk. Like he was in the grave for three days, no spices, no embalming, no nothing. Woo, that was horrible, but Jesus... Remember that time that Jesus drove the demon out and like went into the pigs and the pigs like went over this. I mean, and we just sit there and we tell stories about Jesus. And this is what his followers did. Friends, there's so many reasons why people doubt the miracles of Jesus. But there's so many reasons that we can believe in them. So why are we taking time? Why, why this sermon series? Why spend multiple weeks talking about the miracles of Jesus, these few brief moments of supernatural uh, evidence? I, I think one reason and one reason only. Because we need to know that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus claimed to be God. That's a bold claim. C.S. Lewis says he's either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. And if he's Lord, then these signs of miracles are signs of his divinity and his authority. They're one more proof that, that Jesus has power over death. One more proof that, that Jesus makes it possible for us to live in relationship with God. Maybe you're new to, to Christianity, new to faith. Let me give you a 30,000-foot view of the narrative arc of the Bible. God created the world perfect. We messed it up. Jesus came, God came in the form of Jesus to rescue us from the mess. And Jesus is coming again to restore us and all of mankind back to its original design. I like to use these four words as I talk about this arc. Creation, fall, rescue, and the restoration. And I think it was Tim Keller, a pastor of a church in New York City, who said that the miracles of Jesus... These moments when he heals somebody or, or drives a demon out, when he, when he brings somebody back from the dead, and when these miracles of Jesus are actually a restoration of the way God intended the world to be. I, I like that perspective. When we see Jesus heal a, a paralyzed man, and we see him drive out a, a demon, and we see him bring somebody back from the dead, it's a glimpse of the original design that God intended for this world. It's not supernatural. It's what's supposed to be. Everything else is what's not supposed to be. 
You see, God's plan did, did not include sickness, sadness, or death. Those things are a result of the fall. And, and hear me on this. I'm going to say this twice so you get this. When we become focused on the way that things are rather than the way they're intended to be, then our Jesus is too small. Let me say that again. When we, when we focus on the way things are, broken, unnatural, sick, death, we focus on those things instead of the way that they're supposed to be, the way that they one day will be again, then our Jesus is too small. I have a 16-year-old daughter, got her license earlier this year. My prayer life and insurance rates increased dramatically. Somehow she ended up with my car, and I'm driving an older car. I'm not sure how that happened still. She's a pretty good leader, um, influencer. But one of the first things that she did was she got this, um, I called it a bobblehead, but it's not really a bobblehead because it's, it's on a spring underneath Jesus' feet, but she put this up on her dash. This little springboard, you know, dashboard Jesus. And I thought it was a perfect illustration for the message today. And this is by no means commentary on my daughter's faith. She has an incredible faith. I love what, what God is doing in my daughter and her devotion to Jesus. And so do not misunderstand me using this illustration to say my daughter has a little Jesus. Her Jesus is pretty big. But I think sometimes I, I fall into the trap of having a dashboard Jesus. And, and I think you do too. I, I think most of the time our, our Jesus is too small. And rather than the creator of the universe, Jesus, we relegate our understanding and belief to a dashboard Jesus. You see, we're talking about spectrums this morning on uh, the product adoption scale. Let me talk about a spectrum of Jesus in this room. Some of you came in today and you, all you know is the name Jesus. It was probably used as a profanity at some point in your life. And that's it. And that's okay. We're glad you're here. We want you to grow in your understanding. And we love the fact that you feel welcome here to, to grow in that. Some of you know that, that he was a, a wise teacher and a prophet. And that's kind of where you've landed with Jesus. Some of you know that his story is told in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of you know uh, from Scripture that Jesus died for your sin. He made it possible to be in right relationship with God. Some of you have read the end of the book, and you know that Jesus is coming back again. Some of you know that Jesus actually created all things. He's the sustainer of all things. That he existed before time began as God the Son. Maybe some of you never realized that before. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and he's saying, listen, your Jesus has to get bigger. Jesus wasn't just those 30-some-odd years here on earth. Jesus existed before anything else did. In fact, it was through him that creation exists. I love how the message paraphrase writes Colossians, Eugene Peterson. He says, we look at this son, 
and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the sun and see God's original purpose in everything that's created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and find its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence, and he holds it all together right up to this moment. Friends, I don't know if you know that Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. Some of you came here today, and the only Jesus you understand is the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those 30-some-odd years. Jesus existed before creation began. In fact, he was involved in creation. John, in his gospel, starts it this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Substitute Jesus for Word, because that's what John is talking about. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Some of you know the story of Abraham negotiating with the angel of the Lord over the, the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot and his family are down in there. That was Jesus that Abraham's negotiating with, the second person of the Trinity, some of you know the story of Jacob wrestling uh, with an angel in the brook at Jabbok. That was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. When Moses is on the fire on the side of the mountain and, and God calls to him from the burning bush, the burning fire and the bush are Jesus. The voice in the bush is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, the prophecies all throughout the Old Testament, hundreds of prophecies over thousands of years are all about Jesus. And then we have the Gospels. Eyewitness testimony, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. God becomes flesh. And again, I love how Eugene Peterson writes this in John 1.14. God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I love that picture of Jesus. The rest of the New Testament, all of this is telling us about Jesus. And then at the end of the book, Jesus is coming back. It is all about him. It is for him. It is all in his name and glory. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this. This was an ancient hymn that the early church would sing or would recite back to each other. It says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the, the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Listen to these words. If I, if I could bold this in your heart and mind, I would. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This means that people who believe in Jesus will cry out that Jesus is God. This means that people who don't believe that Jesus is Jesus will one day realize he is who he said he was, and they will cry out that Jesus is God. Every tongue confess, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Friends, our Jesus has got to get bigger. We can't build our life around a dashboard Jesus. And there are moments where the disciples get a glimpse of just how big Jesus was. All of that was an intro to our miracle today. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 23 says this, as Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus, I love this, 
Jesus kept sleeping. So disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to die. He said to them, why are you afraid? You of little faith. And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. The men were amazed, and they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Here's a couple pictures from the Sea of Galilee. I took these when I was in Israel. Just to give you an idea of, of what we're talking about here, just two pictures. It's not a huge body of water, but it's not small. One of the things that made it unique was it was about eight miles long and had mountains and hills on the side, and so wind would often come through this channel. But here's the deal. These guys were not new to the water. These guys that are freaking out in this storm, they were experienced fishermen. They'd been on rough waters before. This was their livelihood. This was their trade. And so, so we have to infer that somehow this storm was bigger than most other storms they'd ever experienced, to the point that they thought they were going to die. You ever had a moment like that? I, I was camping one time, backpacking in Missouri, and uh, we set up our tent on top of Tomsock Mountain, which is the highest point in Missouri, not the Rockies, but still, it's high for the Midwest. And, and we knew that there was weather coming in. We knew there was a storm coming in that night. It was one of the, the most uh, fierce lightning storms and thunderstorms that I have ever experienced, and I'm sleeping in a little tent with two other guys. Nothing but nylon and some aluminum poles, which really aren't good during lightning storms, right? I was terrified. Not even going to lie. I'm an experienced camper, experienced outdoorsman. I've been in a lot of storms. I've, I've camped in a lot of storms, and I thought for sure this was it. I, I'm dead. This was the worst thing that I have ever experienced in my life. This is that moment for these fishermen. And then in the midst of all of this is Jesus taking a nap. I read one article that the headline of it on this scripture was The God Who Sleeps. I thought that was a cool title for a story about this miracle. I once went to a, a conference a student ministry conference, and there was a breakout called the Theology of Napping. And I'm like, this is, sounds amazing. And all it was was a dimly lit room with soft music and lots of pillows and bean bags, and you could go take a nap. Because it's sometimes the greatest thing that your soul needs. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, sleeping peacefully is a sign of the trust and the power of God. Listen to Psalm 3. It says, Lord... This is David. He's fleeing from his son Absalom. It says, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep, David says. I lie down and sleep. I wake up again because well, the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Guys, I'll be honest, I have some sleepless nights. I have some nights where I wake up and I'm thinking about work, I'm thinking about different dynamics in life, different situations that are happening, and I have trouble going back to sleep. 
And at the root cause of it is because I forget that God is in control. Because I put myself in the place of God and I go, if this thing's going to happen, it's because of me. If this is going to get restored, it's because of me. I, I take back control and I begin to worship a dashboard Jesus rather than Jesus who calms storms. I love the fact that the disciples were amazed. They shouldn't be. I mean, they've already seen Jesus do some, some pretty amazing things. Just in, in Matthew chapter 8 alone, I mean, not even the rest of the gospel, just chapter 8, we see uh, Matthew write about a man being cleansed of leprosy by Jesus. We see Jesus healing uh, the servant of a centurion. We see Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law so she can get up and, and serve the disciples. We see Jesus drive out a demon from many people. We see him perform physical healings, and then all of a sudden, he does this moment of control over creation. And that's the moment the disciples are amazed. They, they, they were surprised, maybe they were intrigued, they were fascinated by the previous miracles, but in this moment, Scripture says that they were amazed. They discovered that there is no rival to Jesus. His power over creation proved it once again. And these are guys that know their Old Testament. Uh, look back just at the book of Exodus and God's power over creation. Uh, the book of Exodus, Moses goes to Egypt, says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to let him go. And, Jesus, and Pharaoh Moses is like, okay, well, we're going to see some things happen that you probably don't ever expect to happen. And uh, the blood, the river turns to blood. The, the frogs are everywhere. The gnats come in. The locusts come in. Uh, light turns to darkness. The uh, death of the firstborn son. All of these moments of God showing power over creation and over the gods of Egypt. And so finally, Pharaoh's like, all right, get out, leave, I'm done with you. This is horrible. Your God is more powerful than our gods. Go to the wilderness. And so Moses leads a million people out to the wilderness. And all of a sudden, they come up on a big body of water called the Red Sea. And they're like, Moses, what did you do? Like, you, you didn't follow the GPS. Where are you taking us? And Moses is like, I got this. And God's like, I got this. And he says, raise up your staff. And the waves separate out. The water separates out. And they walk across on dry ground. God has power over the sea. Uh, they're in the wilderness, and, and they're beginning to, to complain and grumble because there's no water. And God's like, I got this. Moses, strike that rock with your staff, and water comes gushing out of a rock. Nobody's ever seen that before. And they're grumbling again one day, and they say, man, we don't have any meat to eat. Back in Egypt, yeah, we were slaves, but man, we had a lot of meat to eat. And God's like getting a little ticked off by this point. He's like, you know, I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to come out your nostrils. And he sends in quail and just floods the Israelite army uh, nation with, with meat. And then he sends these frosted flakes. Oh, I'm sorry, you call them manna. Scripture says they were like flakes that were frosted. And I just think God's sense of humor once again. And he says, listen, I'm going to make something that's never even been in existence before. I'm going to sustain you for 40 years. Friends, my Jesus is too small. Your Jesus is too small. Jesus has to be bigger than any storm you experience in life. Jesus has to be bigger than your deepest hurt and pain. Jesus has to be bigger than your broken relationships, than your failures, than your lost job, your lost finances. Jesus has to be bigger than cancer, bigger than any illness, bigger than grief, bigger than death. So many of us are bogged down in this world because we're worshiping a, a dashboard Jesus. We've taken our eyes off the cross and we've made Jesus so small and we put our eyes on the, the things of this world. 
Is this life hard? Yes. Is this life unfair? Yes. Is this life filled with loss and grief? Yes. But Jesus. But Jesus is bigger than all of those things. And you have to allow him to be bigger than all of those things. Many of you know Jason Tibbs. He's a member of our church, a good friend of mine. He died of COVID earlier this year. That loss has hit me harder than anything in a long, long time. And I'm choosing not to run away from the grief. But every now and again, uh, something pops up on social media, like it did recently. Or I'm at our National Youth for Christ conference in Indianapolis, and they have pictures of all of the YFC members who died this year. And all of a sudden, unexpectedly, his picture is up on the screen, and I lost it. And in these moments, it's, it's easy to get bogged down in the pain. And I'm not denying the pain. I'm not denying the grief. But it's easy to get bogged down and overwhelmed by that, to take my eyes off of Jesus and put it on pain. And I'm doing a pretty good job of when I feel that, when I sense that, when I see that, that I redirect my eyes to Jesus because that's where Jason kept his eyes. And I remember that Jesus, that Jason is now in the arms of Jesus. He's no longer in a wheelchair. He's walking and running and dancing. And as I stood by his deathbed and we talked before he passed away, we talked about playing basketball together in heaven. That's what I'm holding on to. Because that's the Jesus that's bigger than death. And that's the Jesus that I hope that I keep my eyes on when it comes time for me to go into the hereafter. And friends, I'm not talking about blind obedience. I'm not talking about being an early adopter. I'm talking about putting your life in the hands of the God who created the universe, who sustains it, who has power over life and death and creation. I'm talking about putting your life in the hands of the Jesus who's going to come back, who's going to restore us and this world back to God's original design. Jesus knew this life was going to be hard. He told his followers that. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But he didn't pause there. That's a dashboard Jesus. A dashboard Jesus pauses there and says, in this world, you will have trouble. The Jesus we need to worship finishes that with, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Friends, our Jesus needs to get bigger. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we confess that all too often our Jesus is too small. We don't worship the Jesus who has control over the storm. We worship the Jesus that gives us meager little gifts. God, you, Jesus wants to give us uh, huge, all-surpassing gifts. He wants to give us a life that is full and abundant. 
Not one that, that is devoid of heartache and difficulty and pain. Jesus experienced those things. Jesus experienced the, the loss of a friend. Jesus experienced hunger and starvation. Jesus experienced a betrayal of a best friend. There's nothing that any of us in this room have gone through or are going through that Jesus cannot relate to. Hebrews tells us that, that we have a mediator between God and man who knows, who sympathizes because he has been here with us. Father, when we're tempted to take our eyes off the Jesus of the universe, of creation, would your Holy Spirit just lift our chins redirect our gaze back up to Jesus. We worship the true Jesus, the unrivaled Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.